by for Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors with your host, Drew Kirby. Hey, this is Luke Holmes. I am Morgan Wallen. I'm Riley Green. I'm Travis Denning. Hey, I'm Aaron Lewis. Hey, it's Luke Bryan. I'm Tim McGraw. What's up? This is Ian Munsick. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. It's Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors, and this week we are continuing our year in review with Wyoming Game and Fish Department. Janet Millick is with us as always, and and Janet, last week we talked a lot about hunting as we're just wrapping up a lot of the the seasons and and will be here the next couple of weeks as we end the year. Uh, And one of the other things is some of the access, And, and access came up a little bit last week, and we want to get a little more focused on that this week. That's right. Before we jump into access, just a quick reminder to all of the folks that might be listening is, you know, like we talked about last week, it's a year-round process that we manage wildlife. Matt Pollock, who is the Habitat and Access Coordinator, and Matt, you have a, a pretty wide array of things that you have to to cover in your section of Game and Fish because uh, public access is one of the important parts of the department. Yeah, that's right, Drew. Uh, and my title is pretty uh, accurate. I am the Habitat and Access Coordinator. So half of my time I spend uh, working on habitat projects. And uh, one of the one of the funny things about being a, a habitat biologist is you are very dependent on the rain. So and precipitation. So this year I look like a genius because the habitat is in great condition. If we have a drought, then I don't look so good. But, uh, uh, but yeah, the, the other half of my job is, is uh, access. And so I work on uh, access projects throughout the state and uh, excited to uh, talk about a, a new access that we, uh, we took on. It's actually a, a wildlife habitat management area. It's always been public access, but it's uh, very creatively titled the North Glendo Wildlife Habitat Management Area. And it basically goes from the north end of Elkhorn Bay up through the canyon and upstream. Uh, it was Bureau of Reclamation land. Uh, it still is, but we took over management authority uh, down there. And, and we like to think that maybe we'll do a little bit better job of, of managing that area. It is an area uh, that has some fishing opportunities. We do a lot of uh, bird hunting down there. Uh, so we're excited about that. And, you know, the rest of my year is spent taking care of uh, all the, the managed properties that, that I'm responsible for. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really neat about Matt's job, and, and we should probably do a better job of letting folks know all of the different areas, like up and down the North Platte River that he keeps track of that I had no idea that we even had down there. And so that's something, you know, that Matt really, um, Pollock really goes, you know, the a great distance to manage all of these different places and gain access for, you know, hunters and fishermen across the state. And so I think it's a really neat thing to, to recognize his program and what he's doing. That's something that, uh, that I'm constantly working on, Drew, is uh, it's a priority for us in the department to expand access opportunities and so we're we're constantly on the lookout for for opportunities uh for the public to to get additional access to uh some of our great resources such as the north platte river matt hahn's going to talk with us later uh about that great resource and 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 the terrific job that they do managing uh that that fishing uh, opportunities uh kind of a funny story janet asked me to write a uh uh, an article for 
uh, an upcoming issue of Wyoming Wildlife that, that deals with public access. And uh, Brian touched on it last week, the wide spectrum of public access that is available throughout the state. And uh, my first rough draft was only only three times as long as, as, uh, <laughs> as she was requesting. So there are a lot of varieties uh, uh, of public lands and various things that are legal and are not legal on some of those different public lands. And, and so uh, one thing that we talked about last week was that, uh, you know, ask us if you have questions. Uh, there are resources out there, such as Brian mentioned, the Onyx and stuff, but, uh, uh, but even so, it can still be kind of confusing and, you know, give me a call and, and I can help uh, help you through some of those access issues that you may be having. How long does it take you to go throughout this region and really monitor all of the different areas? Because that's kind of a constant thing. You, you're continuously going to different access points to make sure things are right. And how long would it take you to hit every one of those areas? That's a great question. Um, I, I go uh, all the way into Sweetwater County and all the way pr from Sweetwater County, sort of following the Platte River up to the uh, Converse County line. And so, I've got over 30 public access areas and four WHMAs. So yeah, it would take quite a while to, to get to every one of them. Uh, it'd probably take three days just to put boots on everyone and, and then certainly longer than that to uh, do anything of, of any kind of consequence. So it really is important to note that you mentioned that you're always looking for more areas to add to the mix. So, I mean, it's an ever-growing job that, you know, you guys are, are really just passionate about making sure that it's perfect for the Wyoming hunters and fishermen and and hikers and, you know, just outdoor lovers. Just what we do. We, we're always, like I said, always trying to add opportunities for folks, which creates more work for me, but hey, I like what I do. So You mentioned the about the, the new Glendo access area and how that's one that's kind of been in the works for a little while. Are there more that kind of are on paper that eventually will uh, grow to be a big one like that? We're constantly on the lookout for, for opportunities. And, and as you know, there's always uh, properties that, that come up for sale and, and opportunities where people uh, approach us that, that uh, feel passionate about public access and, and, and want to uh, uh, allow for that to occur on their property. And we always look at, we evaluate all those things. Uh, we have a property rights team down in Cheyenne that evaluates all those. And then uh, if they see something that, that makes sense, uh, that looks like a good opportunity, they they push that up to the commission. And then the commission gives our lands branch the opportunity to pursue those opportunities. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we can't talk about, but, uh, but yeah, we're constantly looking for, for things. So there's, there's always something in the works and, you know, and, and it, one of the things that I really like to, to see Janet is with the fisheries that, that Matt was talking about, where all the work that goes into keeping those fisheries up it uh, doesn't just have to do with uh, with access and habitat. It has to do with the fish itself. That's right. You know, and depending on where you are, 
Um, we try to manage all different kinds of fisheries for a diversity for our anglers that are out there. We've talked a lot about on the show, you have people who love trout, you have people who love walleye, you have people who love panfish, and trying to meet the needs of all of those different anglers um, can be a challenge. And that's why we have our other Matt, Matt Hahn, who gets to, to try and balance all of those, those great challenges that we have. And Matt, I know that it has to be a little bit difficult, especially with all the, the fish type that, that Janet just mentioned. And that's only a few just kind of scratching the, the surface of what's here. But to to go into, you know, Wyoming's excellent fisheries and just be able to focus on the fish at hand. Do you do it at just you're doing sauger today and you're doing uh, walleye tomorrow and trout the next day, or, or are you just kind of broad, uh, keeping an eye on things? Oh, I'd say it's a little bit of both, Drew. Um, there's certainly times where we're, you know, if we have a fishery where we're really focused on a single species, um, or it's the time of year when we would be monitoring for a certain species. So let's say uh, Pathfinder Reservoir, we stock rainbow trout in there. Um but we also have walleye as well. So, you know, there's times when we go to Pathfinder specifically to address how the rainbow trout population is doing. Um, but there's other times a year when we're doing uh, survey work where we'll go out into a drainage and we'll sample a bunch of stream sites. And, and really at that point, we're looking at everything in the stream, not just fish, but we're, we're looking at habitat conditions and uh, uh, reptiles and amphibian populations as well. So, um, some of those drainages that have a, a high diversity of species, um, a lot of them native species that are considered somewhat sensitive. You know, we may be collecting data on 15 or 20 different species um, in that particular week and, and looking at relationships, how they all tie together with the habitat. How do you decide throughout the year? Because I know the, the numbers of walleye at Pathfinder, you know, they're there's a lot of walleye in there and you always encourage people to take them when they catch them. And how do you decide, okay, we're going to stock it this year with this many trout, or we, we need to, to turn coat and, and run away from trout this year and put something else in here. I mean, that's, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Those, those decisions are driven by our, our data collection. So we're looking at, return so we we look at the number that we stocked the size that we stocked in previous years and then we can look at the prevalence of those fish in the reservoir and compared and compare that with previous years and there's a lot of different things we look at in terms of fish growth rates fish survival condition all these things and those kind of feed into what we're going to request for the next year so like for instance, in, in Pathfinder, the rainbows stocking has not been doing very well um, for quite a few years now. And so we've been starting to make some changes out there in terms of uh, we're trying some uh, cutthroat stocking, uh, kokanee, um, and then uh, we're trying actually a different strain of rainbow trout that, that we think may have some potential to to survive a little better than, than what we were doing out there. So um, we'll continue for the next several years to look at the returns on those fish and collect that data and then you know go back and compare to our management objectives and and tweak it and keep moving forward 
one of the things over the last couple of years that's kind of been at top of the mind of a lot of folks there at Game and Fish is the the Sauger and how the Sauger is making the comeback. And how do the numbers look for uh, Sauger in the next year or two? Yeah, the Sauger thing's been been great. Uh, you know, Sauger were historically native to the North Platte, um, so they're like basically our native species of of walleye essentially um they've been gone for 80 years or more from the flat and we were recently able to to reestablish a population um that that population was established um kind of on an experimental basis we didn't know if they would reproduce there's some some weirs in the river um that we weren't sure if fish could get past we certainly had some evidence in the past that that they were at least partial fish barriers but uh we got some sauger in. We did some radio uh, transmitting or radio transmitters in those fish, and we found that they're able to get up the river. The, the entire river from Glendo to uh, Dave Johnston is accessible to those fish now. Um, we actually this year for the first time documented natural reproduction of sauger, so we're seeing the numbers uh, increase every year. Um, our tagging stuff shows that they're able to move around quite a bit. And, and now we're seeing that, that they are in fact reproducing on their own. So, um, but yeah, it's been a great success story for sure. The year in review of the fisheries is, is positive in, in most all aspects. Are there any of the downsides that you're seeing? Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the victims of, of the drought, you know, last winter, certainly uh, benefit hit on, you know, some of the impacts to big game, but there were certainly some impacts to fisheries as well. You know, going into the winter, we'd come out of some pretty, pretty severe drought in a lot of places. And so a lot of the reservoir levels were fairly low going into the winter. And then it was a hard, cold winter with a lot of snow. And that was basically a recipe for a lot of winter kill conditions. Uh, so we had a lot of ponds that we stock these are small fisheries out northwest of town basically every single one of them winter killed last year which sucks some you know some of those ponds we had some pretty nice bass populations in others we managed for trout we had some really good bluegill fishery out there um, we lost them all across the board uh, but the silver lining to that is because of all the snow um, those ponds all filled back up water levels were great going into 2023 um, and so we've since uh, restocked all those ponds. Conditions are good to to continue those fisheries into the future for you know several more years, at least as is if we keep getting some some decent amount of snow in the winter. Well, I feel like over the last couple of weeks, what we have proven is that Game and Fish is working hard year round to make sure that the fisheries, the wildlife, the access points are all top notch, and you're not going to find a better state for all of that. So. Uh, make sure if you have questions about anything you've heard over the last couple of weeks to reach out to me and I can get with Janet or reach out to Game and Fish directly. Go to wgfd.wild.gov. You can learn everything you need to know there, of course, of how to contact and uh, and get in touch. Janet, Matt, and Matt, thank you guys so much. We continue Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors in just a couple of minutes with Brian Woodward from Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. It's Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. And we are back. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors with Brian Woodward from Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. And uh, Brian, we are the in crunch time. The Christmas season is here. 
the date is right, but the weather is uh, extremely not December weather. Yeah, it seems a little odd uh, after last year and the year before getting some pretty frigid weather pretty early. But, you know, not saying it's not going to just hold back and just whack us all at once. Oh, I'm sure it's coming. But, you know, I think we can all enjoy these uh, 50 plus 60 degree weathers. I mean, unfortunately, this last week we had a couple 50 50 days, you know. 50 wind, 50 uh, degrees. Right. So You know, I was talking to some people, and they are like, oh, I don't remember it being this windy for such a long time. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Last year, mm-hmm. we started out windy. The year before, it was windy from October until June. So, If you live in uh, Casper, Wyoming, and you don't think it's windy, you haven't been here long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's windy. But, you know, it, it uh, I was noticing that this morning coming into work is that, you know, when it's windy and it's 50 degrees, it's a lot nicer than when it's 50 and 20 degrees. Right. Well, you know, I was thinking that even though it was 50, I still had to wear a hoodie and a mm-hmm. jacket because it's still pretty darn cold when you throw that wind chill factor in there. Winter's going to definitely hit. Who knows when? Uh, you know, it kind of looked like it's just gonna, we're going to get those big storms and then uh, dump and then maybe get a little bit nicer and then wait a few more weeks and then dump again. So don't uh, don't get caught not being prepared because it is definitely coming. Well, you know, you just came back uh, from a hunt, a goose hunt up in the, the northern part of the country in, in Montana. And, I mean, were you kind of in the same situation there where it was nearly short sleeve weather? Uh, one of the guys was hunting in tennis shoes. Oh, nice. You know, so uh, that tells you how nice it was up there, which also explains why we're not seeing a big migration of birds coming through uh, our area area because the weather up there is it was 62 63 degrees when we were up there hunting and yellowstone rivers wide open and there's absolutely no reason for them to to go anywhere they've got feed they've got open water man it's a big party up there for those geese so when you get into a situation like that there's really not a whole lot you can do other than you know like we talked before reposition your decoys or maybe even call a little harder when you see the the geese come in because you got to get their attention the ones that are there well and and the biggest thing is you got to be where they want to be so you know we were up there in montana um up around Hysham, and uh, there was uh, quite a few fields. There were six or eight fields with anywhere from five to 10,000 birds on them, uh, each one. So uh, if you weren't on that field where they wanted to be, it'd be great if you're on the field next to them, but you might pull a couple singles off and doubles off here and there. But those birds, man, they just kind of track each other and, and they, they know when to get off the river and they know where they're going. So so when you get into a situation like that, is adding more decoys to your, your, your flock that you have set out better? It can certainly help. I mean, because up there especially, there's a lot, of, a lot of big groups of birds. Now down here, um, it's more just being in the right location, I think, because we don't have the big flocks of, of geese that, that I was seeing up there. So, you know, most of the flocks I've seen around here are 30 to 100 birds at the most um, in most cases. So you can get away with smaller spreads in a lot of cases. But, you know, a lot of it just has to do with location. I really wish that the city of Casper would let me go out on the golf course because <laughs> from Hole number three all the way to hole number nine, I guess, on this side was just full of geese. They're all just sitting out there laughing. Yeah, and you kind of wonder, you know, they're they're pretty uh, destructive critters anyways, you know. And uh, this time, normally, the, the ground's frozen and they're not really, you know, being able to either 
get to the to the to the grass or uh, be able to pick the roots out. But you know, now that the ground's really not frozen, not frozen hard, you know, those geese could probably be doing more damage to these golf courses for a longer length of time than they would normally be doing. So it'll be interesting to see um, how that affects those golf courses and how they're able to maintain. But they're definitely a nuisance to those golf courses. When we go out and, and hunt, you guys have a, a pretty easy going group of guys, but everybody knows what the job is. And and I know that you guys have been hunting together for such a long time and you get the blinds out, you get the decoys out. But if you go out with a, a group that maybe doesn't have the supplies that, that they need uh, coming in and I mean, you guys can set them up if they want to start goose hunting or duck hunting. Like now's a pretty good time to to come in and check out what you have you know facebook's been kind of like the the place to go to you know find equipment for a lot of cases and there's a lot of guys that are either just upgrading or scaling down um, i see a lot of decoys on different waterfowl sites that are on the on facebook and if a guy's just getting ready to to get into it or they're trying to maybe just add to their their decoy selection uh you know go on facebook go on a marketplace of some sort and uh, that's that seems to be one of the best ways you know a lot of times you can get decoys for half of what you would pay for them new they're going to be just as effective and uh definitely can you know up, upgrade or add to your spread and if you want to add to your spread and maybe you want to buy someone a christmas gift for you know the goose hunter you mm-hmm. can probably come in and take care of them here too everybody always needs ammo right so i mean and gift cards you know are great if you don't know what a person's you know uh using uh we, we've been selling a lot of optics for people you know they kind of realize that hey you know I, I dad needs a needs to upgrade his binoculars so i'm going to hand down my my binoculars or maybe they're just looking to to get their maybe their young adult that's just getting into hunting you know a nice uh, pair of binoculars or maybe a new rangefinder so those have been really popular gifts this year as well as knives you know uh, coming out of hunting season you know maybe you lost a knife maybe you just need to replace some blades uh there's we probably have the one of the largest selections of knives in in Wyoming. So, whether you're looking for Kershaw, Benchmade, CRKT, uh, Cobra Tech knives have been really popular. Uh, there's an awful lot to choose from, and uh, you know we'll we'll have a a good return policy after the season. So if you buy something that they're not quite liking, you know hold on to that receipt. We'll take care of them. We'll make sure that that uh, exchange is uh, easy for them. And if you don't want to go through that, you can always, uh, you know, get the gift card. Gift cards are great. You know, the, the person that you're buying it for might have something on layaway, and it might help them pay, pay that layaway off and gets them uh, that, that new gun that they had put aside uh, a little quicker. So, yeah, gift cards make great gifts. Which you mentioned gun, and, you know, you guys have one of the largest gun walls and, and in-stock guns in Casper and maybe most of Wyoming. Yeah, I, I, according to the ATF, I do believe that we have the largest selection of guns <laughs> in Wyoming. But um, yeah, and it 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 uh, we we've talked about our website in the past. Uh, our website, you know, our, our online shopping experience there will tell tell you what's available through our warehouses, but it doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what's in store in the store. So um, if you're looking for a particular gun, uh, especially some of the direct guns like Benelli and some of the Brownings, like if you were looking for a SHOT Show gun that might have came out, those guns won't be on our website, but certainly give us a call. I had a guy the other day that was looking for a Browning Wicked Wings, and that's kind of a special SHOT Show makeup. 
and we did have a couple of them on the on the wall and was able to take care of them but if he would have just went to the website he wouldn't have seen them so uh, make sure that uh, you know you give the store a call uh, we'll hunt it down for you whether it's a hard to find a reloading supply or a shotgun rifle uh, we can take care of you and that's one of the best parts about Rocky Mountain Discount Sports, the fact that customer service is really number one. And, you know, you're a Wyoming-based company owned by Wyoming folks and taking care of the folks of Wyoming. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, as a small business in Wyoming, you know, it, I, I feel really privileged and proud that to say that, you know, we, we, we sponsor and we support a lot of local events, you know, so you see these kids out front that are selling raffle tickets for their hockey or uh, baseball or basketball teams. I mean, we're involved with the community. We want to we want to help out the best way we possibly can, whether that's through you know, providing access for a guy to sell Christmas trees on the side of the lot here or kids selling raffle tickets. Um, or the Thankful Thursday events that, that we help su- support and sponsor on those. So, um, yeah, we appreciate uh, you guys as customers uh, supporting us so that we can we can turn around and support the community in return. If you haven't been in here a while, come on in, check them out, or go to RockyMountainSports.com and check out the website and start shopping a little bit early this holiday season. It'll be here before you know it. Don't forget, layaway and gift cards available right here into the store. It's Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. It's Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors, and we've talked to a lot of folks on this show about outdoors, hunting, fishing, loving every day. We've never really talked to someone about preserving what it is that you're out hunting, fishing, and loving every day about. Casey Vollmer is here with Victory Wildlife Artistry, and Casey, you focus in on keeping the animals that people harvest in their family for such a long time. And and that really is kind of your passion behind it. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that is truly an honor for us at Victory is, is preserving that memory of the mountain. That's actually our motto is, is something that we hold very near and dear to our hearts. And so we want that, that memory to be able to be on your wall and be passed on for future generations for, for as long as it can last. And so that's, that's something, a driving force that we have at Victory. So, Casey, when I asked you how you got into taxidermy and this artistry, you said, well, this is your next phase of life. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I I like to think of this as my second stage in life, kind of my restart. And I've been really active in in the meat processing world, and that's what I went to school for and, and thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, getting getting into that is is something that you don't necessarily know how it's going to go. And I, I decided that wasn't for me. And so a couple of years ago, I I left the meat plant and left my man, my management position in the meat processing world and started kind of rethinking what I wanted to do. And I've always been so passionate about hunting and conservation. And, and that's just been part of my blood forever. You know, we grew up doing that and we processed our own meat. And so I kind of started out as just a, as a hobby Euro taxidermist and was doing some skulls for people back in Iowa. And uh, somebody kind of just threw out the idea that, hey, maybe you should just be a taxidermist and go all out. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. And, and it just kind of went from there. And I, it, it was just kind of that seed that got planted and, and something that, you know, obviously I'm really passionate about my mounts and the memory that they hold on my wall. You know, I worked for a taxidermist for a while and, and learned the trade from him and decided to go to school. And so went to taxidermy school and opened up my own shop. And so this is my second year out on my own, but 
I've had the privilege to work on hundreds of mounts, and and it's it's just a phase of my life that I'm absolutely loving. Very passionate about it. Are, were you an artistic person before? Yes, and I always like to joke with my dad because when I was little, I I was like, yeah, I want to be a ta- or I want to be a, an artist, and and he's like, you know, there's no there's no money in that, and and that's kind of one of those things that you know you always have that skill, and it, it's something that you love, and and now I'm really fortunate to have that opportunity to put that to use, and and to me, it is art. I have art hanging in hundreds of people's houses across the country, and and that's something that I'm really proud of because I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into that, and and it's something that that attention to detail and preserving that memory. I I want people to be able to look at that mount and relive that memory of the hunt. When you are putting your thoughts and creative juices into this, like what are the some of the stipulations that you think about? I mean, because you have to think about it. I would assume well before you even harvest your animal. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I really like to work with those hunters on. And, you know, if if they're trying to recreate that memory, you know, you want them to look at the pose or the way that they're, they were looking in the field or the habitat that they were in. And, and that's all stuff that we can incorporate in an artistic manner and in recreating that. And so um, things from my perspective as a taxidermist, you, you look at the size differences, maybe in the rack or um, which which position that animal's going to look their best in, and that's ultimately what I want. But um, if a hunter comes in with a, a, a definite image in their head, and we can definitely look at pictures or ideas that they have and incorporate that the best that we can for them. When you think about this, I, I mean, when a guy goes out hunting a, a bull elk, and uh, is this something that they come to you and talk to you before they even start the hunt to kind of give you an idea of, of what's going on? I, I wish more people would, honestly, and, and it's something that might not be discussed quite as much, but I, I want hunters to stop in. I want them to give us a call, and, you know, that's something that we can be in better better preparation for because it does start, you know, you're planning your hunt. starts with your gear. It starts with your, you know, whatever weapon you're going to use out there, and, and that goes all the way through the preservation of the meat and the rack and the hide all the way through till it comes on your wall, and so it really is a full cycle um, that, that I want more hunters to to think about and so even just preparing the cape when you're out in the field once you do harvest something um, the the quality of your mount is going to start there because bacterial growth starts to set in at 40 degrees and that's what a lot of people don't realize is you want to treat that like you do your meat so you wouldn't go to the grocery store and buy fresh meat and let it sit out same goes for for your wildlife, your wild game that you're preserving. Um, you want to make sure that it stays cold. You want that hide and that head to be as cold or even frozen um, until you can get it to your taxidermist because it really is very important that that is the quality that we need it to be and the best best amount possible so that we can continue that process all the way through your mount. So sometimes when you're in the perfect, perfect position, things happen, the, the animal moves, you you have to take two shots instead of just one. I mean, are you able to, to work around a bad shot or a shot that isn't in the right spot? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we've learned to do. And, you know, we're, we're professional sewers, if you will. And so we're really good at, at sewing things up. And the way I like to put it into perspective, though, is, you know, if you think about hair and how it lays on the animal, a lot of those fibers are going to be hollow, especially on your antelope. Um, that's a great example. And so once that hair gets messed up or disturbed or cut through, that's really hard for us to fix. I mean, we can do our absolute best for, for patchwork, for sewing and that stuff that, that we're ultimately going to 
to do the best that we can. Um, and so I just want people to keep that in mind, and especially in the caping process, making sure that it's caped properly and um, you're going to be seeing the front of your mount or whichever way you're going to have it turned. And so we, we want that hair and, and everything to be in the best possible condition that it can. So if somebody does make that bad shot, there's ways that you can maybe reposition the animal in the final mount stage? Yeah, absolutely. And when when an animal gets checked in, that's something that I do look for. And um, depending on shot placement or, you know, maybe maybe their knife slipped when they were caping it. And that's stuff that we can work around. And I'll point it out to the hunter just so that they're aware. And, and I always make a note of it right at check-in. And, and we can try to work around that and maybe turn it a different way or pose it a different way because I ultimately want that best view possible for them. And so and a lot of times, uh, mule deer especially, they have almost notches in their ears. And so in the rut, when they're fighting, they'll they'll have injuries or anything like that. And a lot of times you don't necessarily see that in the hunting process, but I see every part of it when we when we get into fleshing the head and turning the ears and everything. And so that's stuff that to me is character, but if a hunter doesn't necessarily want that showing, um, we can find our way to work around it a little bit. So really you can almost do a Photoshop on, on a mule deer. <laughs> I mean, ultimately you could. Um, <laughs> there's, there's times that I've had to piece together different parts. Um, but even, even if it's just a directional change or, you know, um, deer and antelope and elk, for example, their, their attitude is, is seen in their ears. And so we can kind of shift the, the ear placement, whether it's backwards or forwards or turned a certain way, and then match that with the pose that we're going to do. So if you do want to kind of hide one of those ears a little bit, if it's in pretty rough shape, then, then we can adjust the whole mount to accommodate that. That's so cool. Casey Vollmer is who we're talking to, Victory Wildlife Artistry. And Casey going to give us some more info and talk more about uh, maybe that first mount coming up in just a couple of minutes on Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. It's Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. Back on Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors, it's Drew, and you can always get us on the radio station app. Click on demand and hear all of our shows. We're sitting with Casey Vollmer today. Casey is the owner of Victory Wildlife Artistry, and you have done hundreds of mounts for hundreds of people, and you've done different kind of mounts, but this art and artistry, it doesn't happen overnight, does it? No. And it, it takes you a long time from start to finish on an animal. Can you kind of run us through the process and the procedure from the time the animal gets to you to the time you deliver the animal? Yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of steps that, you know, even myself as a hunter, before I started getting into this, I wasn't necessarily aware of. And so there's a lot of factors that that come into play. And, you know, like I said, it starts in the field with the hunter and their preparation there. And so then when they bring it to me, um, we're going to get it checked in. We're going to do some some measurements on, you know, eye to nose and the circumference of the neck so that we can try to recreate that as, as most accurately as we can, as what you saw in the field. Um, so we're going to take those measurements, look at the condition of the hide and the hair. Um, and then from there, it, it, it goes right into production because we're going to start turning ears. We're going to be fleshing everything, making sure that, that the hide itself and those hair follicles are going to be preserved. So it's going to be salted. And, and then turned and dried, and then it's going to be sent off to a, a professional tannery. And 
And to us, that's really important because that quality of the tan is is going to determine the longevity of your mount too. And so we do professional garment tans and make sure that that's the highest quality leather that we're getting back. And so, and sometimes we're at the leisure of the tanneries. There, there's not very many left, and that's that's definitely a skill that's that's to be desired in our industry for sure. And so, um, you know, that that might take quite a few months to get the tans back. And so, once we do get those back, we we remeasure because the the tumbling and the preservation process of that tan is gonna is gonna shift it a little bit, might stretch it a little bit more. And so, we just want to make sure that's the most accurate measurement that we can. Um, from there, we're going to order forms and materials to get ready. And then once those come in from our supply company, we're going to go right to work and, um, you know, go get right on there, putting the glass eyes in, doing clay work and epoxy work and, and making sure that, you know, everything fits properly on your form. And so um, we usually have it dry for a couple weeks, um, you know, just fine tuning, making sure that everything is is exactly where it's supposed to be from from the eye placement and the eyelids to ears. Everything needs properly dried first before we can get to work on the finishing aspect, which is going to be your epoxies and your painting and the finishing, making sure that it looks its best on the wall. Now, Casey, one thing that, you know, is really interesting to me is you don't get just one mule deer. How many different projects are you working on at the same time? You know, it, it kind of depends. I mean, sometimes we'll have nights where there's six deer that get checked in, you know, right after hours or, yeah, you know, at night after everyone gets back in from the field. And so that stuff needs taken care of as quickly as possible. And, and I might still be in the process of, um, of mounting up a deer, you know, turning hides. And so, you know, on, on a normal day, we have four or five going at the same time, just depending on what stage they're in. Wow. So you're just going kind of like a doctor in an emergency room where you're going from room to room to room to room and back to that room just to kind of do a little bit of work on each? Yes, absolutely. And it's a it's a lot of prioritization. You know, you, you have to kind of look at, you know, what needs taken care of right away and, and a lot of time management. And because I do own my own business, I have the luxury of, of having some some weird hours sometimes. Yeah, and right. and so, you know, if something needs taken care of, we're we're going to be up working on it, making sure that it's it's where it needs to be. Do you have a particular animal that you enjoy working on more than others? You know, it might be a PR way of saying it, but they all mean a lot to us. And it's an honor to to get to do anything, whether it's big or small. You never know what somebody's story is. And so we, we take tremendous amount of pride in, in anything that comes in our shop. And so um, whether it's something like an antelope or a deer, something you might see more of, um, all the way to our African kudus that we've done, our axis deer, or bears, um, every, every piece is a little bit different artwork. And it's something different every time. And so we absolutely love the detail and, and getting to work on a lot of different things. When you go into the artist mode of this, because there's so many different steps of it, but when you get to the final, all right, here's what's going on. Here's what I'm going to do. Um, how much do you sit and think about it? I mean, is this something, do you like talk to the the hunter and be like, okay, well, here's kind of what I think. What were you thinking? And and kind of go back and forth. Yes, absolutely. And that's something I didn't necessarily experience in my past with other taxidermists for my personal mounts. And so um, that communication aspect for me is really important. And so I, I might actually bug them a little bit more than they want, but I just want to make sure that they're getting what they want. Um, and again, that's that memory of a lifetime that they're going to have on their wall. And so, you know, if there's something that might not be working quite as well or, 
or I really think that it'll, you know, look bigger or better in a different pose, that's something that I will be in contact with them with or, you know, any problems that might arise. I'm, I'm in communication with them at every step. Once you get the, the final project done, um, say, say somebody moves into a new house and they're like, oh, man, this just isn't going to fit. Is there any way that I can change stuff on my, my mouth? Yeah, there's always, you know, that opportunity to remount something. And, you know, taxidermists are always looking for spare capes, too. And so even if, you know, for the hunters out there that might just want a euro something, if they want to bring in a spare cape and it's caped like you would for a mount, taxidermists are always going to be really appreciative of that because um, that there's something that, that might come up or, or someone that, you know, maybe harvested something a long time ago and it didn't quite have that longevity that they were looking for, they can always bring that rack back in and, and we can remount it in a way that, that they're looking for. And so that's always that's always something that we'd entertain doing. Which is, is kind of cool that you can do that, you know. But, you know, when you, you think about the, the artistry that we have here in, in Casper, you go through the entire city and you see some forms of art, but one form of art they probably don't think about is taxidermy and it's it's a lot of time patience effort and I'm sure a, a few tears here and there too yes absolutely <laughs> and and that's why I say it's that literal that literal aspect of blood sweat and tears and you know that's even when I go to bed at night I I'm still thinking about that and and dreaming about the little details and, and that's something that we're we're all encompassing you know it, it is about those fine details making sure that that every little thing is as perfect as it can be and you know when you when you see some different taxidermy on the wall you might not know why one looks better or worse than the other but but it's in those fine details there and so we want to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can just to make sure that that artistry is is as perfect as it can be. If someone's listening now and they are going out on their first hunt, uh, what is the best way for them to really learn how to cape the animal properly and, and what they need to do out in the field so that they don't ruin it? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of homework that goes in, just like you're, you know, you're going to be researching your area. You might go out scouting. You should also do that ahead of time with your taxidermist. And, you know, there's there's a, a good handful of us here in Casper. There's some really great people and, and even in Wyoming as, as a whole. And there's opportunity to, you know, get your mount to where you really want it to well, not only fit into your budget, but also fit into to kind of the vision that you're looking at. And so I would highly recommend, you know, doing your homework, reaching out. Most of us are, are more than happy to have you come stop by the shop, look at what we have going on, and maybe discuss some of those, you know, things like prices or the details. And, and a lot of us are more than willing to show you how to cape something out too. And so I would definitely say reach out to to those taxidermists so that you know the way that they might want it caped or, you know, everyone's a little bit different. Um, but it's it's really important to make sure that there's always enough cape um, that we have for a shoulder mount or a pedestal mount. And so um, those cuts are really important um, in, in the quality of the mount that you're going to get at the end. So please reach out to your taxidermist, do your homework on that, and just make sure that it's, it's the doing the right thing in the field for when you're bringing it to your taxidermist. Very good. Go to Victory Wildlife Artistry. You have a Facebook page. Your email address is there. Easy way for people to reach out to you. Yep. We're, we're a little bit newer on social media. We weren't sure we were going to go that route, but we're really proud of the stuff that we're sending out. And so we do have a Facebook and an Instagram, and we try to update that with some of the stuff we're working on. And, and please, yeah, email, call, reach out. 
we're more than happy to discuss anything with you from from your hunt to brainstorming some ideas or or even helping you cape something out. So please reach out. Very good. Get there, check it out. Victory Wildlife Artistry and uh, Casey. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. It's been a pleasure. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors with Drew Kirby. If you have a question, want to make a comment, or have an idea for a show topic, message us on the My Country mobile app. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors.